You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. We must not be selfish or timid. It seems like a small thing. But to me, an important note of context as Jimmy Carter takes office in 1977 is, it's really cold. I mean, it's one of the coldest winters on record. The Ohio River freezes over. There's snow in Birmingham, Alabama for the first time anyone can remember. They're getting snow flurries in Palm Beach. And in the areas where it's supposed to snow, like upstate New York, you can't travel except by snowmobile. We're going to get hit with the blizzard of 77. All of this adds gravity to the need to do something about energy because everyone's watching how many barrels of oil are being consumed to heat homes. And they don't know where their supply is going to come from. Ben Carter takes office. A new president. Not really enamored by many in his party, you know. They have the same letter after their name. But many of the people, as he looks at that dome across from Pennsylvania Avenue, many of those people wanted somebody else in the White House. Carter submits his proposal. It has 113 different proposals. And Carter says everybody's favorite thing in Washington This isn't going to be popular. Tonight I want to have an unpleasant talk with you about a problem that's unprecedented in our history. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. In May 1977, when President Carter came to London, there was a bit of a row created over what should have been a fairly simple thing, how the British would address the new American head of state. His name was James Earl Carter, so protocol is clear here. You call him James E. on all invitations and official correspondence. But in all Carter's communications, the president used Jimmy. The idea of the court using Jimmy to address the most important relationship, yet that's how the guest of honor wished to be addressed. How could they not comply? Prime Minister Callahan and the Queen greeted the new president as Jimmy. I, Jimmy Carter, do solemnly swear. It was a unique moment, and it would remain so. We didn't have I, Ronnie, I, Georgie, I, Billy, I, Georgie, I, Barry. Chief Justice Warren Burger asked him to repeat I, Jimmy Carter, and he said, I, Jimmy Carter, do solemnly swear. Then the inaugural parade. 
the newscasters talk of how Card is a nuclear engineer. He does 50 push-ups a day. He never sleeps. He still finds time for Bible study. All of this as the Danish wagon is pulled by Arabian horses down Pennsylvania Avenue, followed by a hydrogen-powered car. The future of transportation. Military marchers, the nation's best high school bands, Colonel Harlan Sanders on a Kentucky Fried Chicken-inspired float, and a very brave American Samoan dancer in a grass skirt on a 34-degree day. Amy Carter yawning, Rosalind Carter wiping the face of her grandkid, and Abraham Lincoln on roller skates, Carter and his Vice President Mondale eat it up. Abe skates and does two circles around the new president's booth. Mondale and Carter having shed their coats because the reviewing stand is solar heated. My commitment solar energy is unshakable and hydrogen too. And of course, coal must be in discussions. Energy Secretary Schlesinger does not remove his coat. It was still cold in there, he would say. The media notices, but that's not the important moment. The most important moment of the day is when Carter gets in the limbo, goes down a little bit, and then says, I'm getting up. I'll walk. I'm I'm getting getting out. Going to walk. His aides are confused. Press Secretary Jody Powell didn't brief the press because he didn't know that Carter was going to walk. So Jimmy Carter and Rosalind simply walk to the White House. Jimmy Carter had never been to the White House. His son and grandchildren get out and are walking on the street. Amy, his young daughter, is walking on the street. All the Carters walking alone, waving to people who are on either side. Incredible, the newspapers will say. The highlight of the day. Carter walks for 40 minutes. The Secret Service knew about it, but they told him, if you want to do this, keep it a secret. And he did. There is a man who runs in from the street to greet him. He's fairly harmless, but the Secret Service just guide him back. The Miami Herald said he would doubtless like to see it as an end to fear, end of fear of unknown dangers. As he's walking down Pennsylvania Avenue, the man has a 75% approval rating. He salutes Ford for all he's done to heal our land. My predecessor for all he has done to heal our land. And what's more, he goes over and shakes his hand. It, it, it's unusual for a president to do that level with the former president. You you just ran a campaign against him. In terms of the walking down the street, it comes from a strange plan. Senator William Proxmire had suggested to the new president, in order to promote physical fitness in America, maybe you should walk. No, Carter says he's not going to do that. He finds it a bit corny. But then he thought about it. And according to his memoirs, he realized it would be important as not about physical fitness, but as a symbolic act that the president was close to the people. What can we do 
about inflation. Carter knows the problems of 77. Inflation, energy, education, jobs, modernizing the military, reducing the size of the federal government. And he sets out plans to do all of it. Leadership cannot be remote. It must be set by family. And really, to do all of it in 1977. He carried his own bags going up on Air Force One. He sold the presidential yacht, a nice ride called the Sequoia. It also saved some energy. He turned the ACs off in the White House often. It was hot in there, Walter Mondale said. He was not a fan. We'd take people in and, boy, they'd look hot. He told the Marine Band to stop playing Hail to the Chief. He was not an imperial president. And the public responded well at first. We forget this. They responded well at first to this. Congress felt the pressure. They didn't like his plan to reorganize the executive branch, but they approved it. Now, I know that some of you may doubt that we face real energy shortages. The 1973 gas lines are gone. And with the springtime weather, our homes are warm again. But our energy problem is worse tonight than it was in 1973. In the case of energy, he forms a study group headed by his energy secretary, Schlesinger, to come up with a proposal for Congress by June. He asks for suggestions from the public. But because of the quick time frame, the study group has to really develop its own suggestions, and they don't have time for all the inputs from everyone else. This is noted in the press, and there's the first little dings of, why do you have this secret study group? Nonetheless, everyone agreed that energy was the big issue. Because we are now running out of gas and oil, we must prepare quickly. New type of president, new approach. Maybe something could be different. Maybe we could start to shed some of that imperial presidency that seemed to remind so many people of Richard Nixon and Watergate and that they were kept out of the room. Carter's goal, at least, and his rhetoric is to put the American people back into the room. One um, cabinet meeting that's covered by time is indicative of this new president taking office. He said, there will never be an instant while I'm president when the members of the White House staff will come dominate black superior to the members of our cabinet. Next day, Carter met with his team for the first time around the big mahogany table in the cabinet room, signifying his concern with conserving energy. The thermostat was at 65 degrees. Quipped Press Secretary Jody Powell, I'm told it was one of the most wide-awake cabinet meetings ever held. It better had been, because the meeting lasts three hours, 90 minutes longer than they schedule, and Carter had a list of instructions for all the cabinet members. He requested proposals for trimming the bureaucracy, particularly the How to consolidate 3,500 lawyers working in the federal system. As a small businessman, I know these positions could be readjusted to the great savings of the taxpayer.
He ordered the cabinet to avoid speeches before long, large audiences. And he asked him, how do you plan to get out and see the people of this country? Carter barred his senior aides from using government limousines, except for official business. On Carter's orders, 12 leased Chrysler sedans and eight other vehicles were removed from the White House fleet, which is now down to 36 cars, for a staff of 485. Henceforth, outside working hours, staffers will have to depend on cabs. One of the first victims of the new policy was National Security Advisor Zygmunt Brzezinski who has refused the car to take him to the press club dinner, despite his plea that it was official business. Finally, he drove his own car and arrived a half hour late because he had trouble finding a parking space. Carter is the first president to join a live talk radio show. Ask President Carter, they called it. He took 42 calls from citizens. Silly questions like, why can't we ship boxcards of snow to the West? To alleviate the droughts there? Which a 13-year-old boy asked. Could karate training be given to those in the military? What do you do to relax, Mr. Carter? Could we have a Yankee baseball game in Cuba? How can we produce more jobs? Why does your family live in the White House, Mr. Carter, off the taxpayers? We aren't mooching. Personal expenses of my family are paid out of pocket. Why are you pardoning draft dodgers and junkies and not doing anything for people like me in the military, one caller asked. Did you say dairy farmers were making too much money? Absolutely not, the president said. Are you violating states' rights by lobbying for the Equal Rights Amendment? Absolutely not, the president says. Would you like to volunteer for the space program, maybe for the space shuttle? No, the president said. I'm probably too old for it. Mr. President, what can you do to protect us from shoddy merchandise? What can you do for farmers? Has the War Powers Act limited your authority? This and a tour out to meet the people was well-received. Carter's talk show style was ridiculed in a, by the Saturday Night Live program, which had just recently started. And now, live from the White House, ask President Carter. I, uh, I took some acid. <laughs> I'm uh, afraid to leave my apartment and I can't wear any clothes. And the ceiling is dripping. And, uh, I, uh. Well, thank you very much for calling, sir. No, Please. No, just a uh... minute, Walter. This guy's in trouble. I think I better try to chalk him down. Peter? Yeah. <laughs> Peter, what did the acid look like? Um, they were these little orange pills. Were they barrel shaped? Uh, yes. Okay, right. You did some orange sunshine, Peter. <laughs> How long ago did you take it, Peter? Uh, I don't know. I can't read my watch. All right, Peter, now just listen. Everything's going to be fine. You're, you're very high right now. You'll probably be that way for about five more hours. Try taking some uh, vitamin B complex, uh -huh. vitamin C complex. If you have a beer, go ahead and drink it. Okay. Just remember, you're a living organism on this planet, and you're very safe. You've just taken a heavy drug. Now, right. just relax. You know, and, and they were making fun of Carter's, like, kind of making fun of his ability just to answer all of these different 42 types of questions and things. And you hear. Well, stay inside and listen to some music, okay? Yeah. Do, you, do you have any Allman Brothers? Not so well received was when Carter issued a statement backing Israel's statement that it required defensible borders. But then he had to backtrack and clarify that he was not changing U.S. policy in a statement. The previous U.S. policy, Nixon, Ford, 
Kissinger, all of them, had called for just merely secure borders rather than defensible. Press Secretary Jody Powell was in summoned action, urging reporters not to put too much stock into the specific words the president used. More proposals. Carter proposes $250 million for youth jobs. He suggests to Congress that they work on a constitutional amendment to abolish the Electoral College and to pass election reform, including subsidies for House and Senate candidates. He supported nuclear power. Carter's energy secretary, not him, Schlesinger, and this is 1977, calls it safe. I would sleep right next to a nuclear power plant, Schlesinger says. He supports curbs in the federal funding of abortion. When asked, is it fair that a rich person can get an abortion where a poorer person cannot, Carter says, Sometimes life isn't fair. Carter called on Congress to decriminalize marijuana in small amounts, mixed with a combined White House effort to discourage all drug abuse in America, including abuse of alcohol. 25 grams of marijuana, Carter said, should be treated like a traffic offense. This was the law in place in New York at the current time. He called to limit mortgage deductions, reform welfare, and urged the Fed to reduce rates. A lot for one year. To strict conservation and to the renewed use of coal and to permanent renewable energy sources like solar power. There have been different times since I've started this podcast in 2006 where energy prices have been a problem, where prices have spiked for different reasons. Energy must be our greatest concern, but too often other priorities are in the way. It is for the president to remind Congress and the American people of its importance. We've been in the midst of one of those now. Inflation's not something I could talk about in any other way than an archaic historical political issue. No, not anymore. So we understand a lot more about 77 and what Carter's up against taking over as a new president, really being handed the same problems that, that weren't solved. Energy prices were high, and they were driving the cost of everything else up. Foreign sources were 50% of the supply, which meant the U.S. was dependent on other parts of the world. It's worse because more waste has occurred, and more time has passed by without our planning for the future. And it'll get worse every day until we act. Despite an initially sunny image, Carter had problems underneath this surface. He didn't beat Ford by a lot, just 2% in the popular vote. He benefited from Republicans voting for him, mad about Watergate and the pardon of Nixon. He didn't bring many Democratic congressmen with him on his coattails. New energy was felt in the Congress in Washington, D.C. after 1974, when they win a big election and the so-called Watergate babies, more liberal, democratic, mostly congressmen, are elected, they don't know anything to Carter. They're more liberal than Carter. Carter didn't bring in any new congressmen on his coattails in the 76 election. Thus, relations with the new speaker, Tip O'Neill of Massachusetts, who had been majority leader, taking over from Carl Albert, were tense. Carter had talked again and again in his campaign, about getting rid of the old politics. The Carter people were talking about me, is what Tip O'Neill, a veteran of political maneuvering in Congress and in the Massachusetts State House, said. 
They were talking about me. Coming from streetwise Boston politics, he didn't see the merit in giving up those old politics. That's what got people heating, food, education. All that had to be fought for in old Boston and in D.C. Still, he figured Carter's people were just using this as a nifty slogan. They'd drop it and get to work on the Hill like everybody else. No, he was wrong. In his first meeting, Carter goes on and on about how he was going to change things, and he'd work around Congress if need be. Tip O'Neill is beside himself. In all his meetings with Nixon and Ford's people, they wouldn't start a meeting talking about how they're going to work around him. They at least consulted with us. It starts with appointments. Carter is going to do this based on merit. If there's a Republican and they're qualified, they can get the job. The administration was only rarely consulting with the congressional members, and importantly, senators or congresspeople from the state where the potential appointee was coming from. Usually, there's more consultation with the White House over that, or consultation at least with the relevant committee heads. You're going to appoint a labor secretary. You're going to look to that relevant congressional committee. Some of the key people Carter appoints, Bell Griffin, Burt Lance, Jody Powell, Stu Eisenstadt, and Ham Jordan were from Georgia. The press was already calling them the Georgia Mafia. From Carter's point of view, from his people's point of view, he was no one in early 76. Now he was president. These are the people that got him there. These are the people he trusted. All these Democrats in Congress, this is what makes Carter's situation more interesting than perhaps any president since Grover Cleveland is that when he looks at the Hill and sees all those Democrats in Congress, it's almost the way Ford would look at the Hill, and maybe even worse, because Ford had worked with many of the Democrats in Congress. Carter's an outsider. Just happens to be in the same party. But all of those, most of those Congress people supported other individuals for president in 76. It was a scattered election. Carter came from nowhere to win it. He didn't have congressional support. Most of them were for Scoop Jackson or for Humphrey. A group of congressmen go to visit him at the White House. He tells them, when I was governor, I spoke directly to the people when I needed to. The legislature was too controlled by special interests. He told this group, I can reach your constituents better than you can. That didn't sit well with him, nor with O'Neill. The world now uses about 60 million barrels of oil a day. And demand increases each year, about 5%. This means that just to stay even, we need the production of a new Texas every year, an Alaskan North Slope every nine months, or a new Saudi Arabia every three years. One episode struck Tip O'Neill for a long time, and it shouldn't have mattered. But Tip O'Neill was supposed to get tickets to a special inaugural Kennedy Center performance. Tickets for him and tickets for members of his family. Ham Jordan, nominally Carter's chief of staff. Now, Carter actually doesn't appoint of chief of staff, which is seen historically as a big mistake because he wants to do that work himself. It's too Nixonian. Remember all those references to Bob Haldeman and all that he did during Watergate? Having a chief of staff, it sounded like the imperial president. But Jordan is functioning in that role. 
and eventually he would take that. Route. Why is it? Okay. Honestly, let's get that out of the way because all right, this is uh, bothers me. Not the first time I've been asked. I'm just certain of that. Right. Last you, twenty okay. minutes it has been. <laughs> how do you how do you pronounce W O R D word? J O R D. Jared. Yeah. 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 Jordan doesn't get O'Neill and his family these tickets. He'd claim it was an oversight. He had a lot of other work to do. O'Neill took it as a slap in the face. The new Georgia folks saying this is where he and his old politics could go. Neil was O'Neill was livid. I could shut you guys down for a month, he told Jordan. Jordan apologized, eventually, but O'Neill never liked him. Twelve years later in his memoir, he called him Ham Jerkin. Uh, you don't become president of the United States by accident. You have to have ability and talent. And Nixon was a brilliant man, and so was Jimmy Carter, and, and Jerry Ford. Uh. But, you know, we can't just take Tip O'Neill at face value, I think, either. I think there's some truth in what he's saying, but he had an agenda. And frankly, if you took polls of the country, on some issues, they might support O'Neill's agenda, but on other issues, they wanted a more conservative turn at this time. I mean, country's going to elect Reagan in a few years. Nobody knows that at this time. So uh, this is Carter's point of view. Carter feels like Democratic members had been used to Nixon or Ford. And their attitude was one of competition. It had not been in more than a week when top Democratic leaders were complaining that they hadn't been adequately consulted with. It seems they had an insatiable desire for consultation, which we were never able to meet. Hmm. Those are the two sides there about what happened with Jimmy Carter's presidency because one of the main failures uh, – Spoiler alert kind of thing is that it didn't work with Congress well, but they really were ideologically different. It just happened to be of the same party. Carter has a point. Tip O'Neill keeps talking about being consulted with, being consulted with. Well, did they want to be consulted with or did they want to change what Carter's team wanted to do? And that's the open question. But here's one example. The Carter hit list, a list of dam and water projects that Carter's people identified as pork, waste. He wanted to get rid of to help balance the budget. You've got to balance the budget, Carter thought, in order to get inflation down so that the government is not competing for debt with other private sources. These dam and water projects were very important to the members. They were in their districts. And when the list leaks to the press and is published without consultation with Congress, it made members look foolish in districts where they were promising these dam and water projects. So Carter takes a few dams off the list, not many, and the House promptly votes against Carter, 247 to 177, to stop his hit list. It's an early signal that Congress wasn't going to do his bidding. Carter took a lot of time on his nominations. He wanted a thoughtful process, yet he hit snags. Griffin Bell, Attorney General, hadn't he been a segregationist? Ted Sorensen for CIA director. Okay, key Kennedy aide. But he was a conscientious objector during the Vietnam War. Now he's going to be director of the CIA? He had to withdraw the nomination, and it looks bad. Then the proposals he sends to Congress are a veritable potomac of legislation. Maybe he took on too much, Carter admits in his diary, keeping faith. But it's impossible for me to delay. 
when I think there's important work to be done. He hits a snag when he proposes to cut corporate taxes. That's kind of more of a Republican idea. This isn't what his party's member in Congress want. It's another snag. Labor wants $30 billion in public work spending and a $0.70 cent minimum wage hike. But Carter didn't win primaries with labor. They supported Humphrey or others. Sure, sure, labor says, but we got you the general election. Remember, you only squeak through. Carter and his team don't quite believe that. That's the politics behind it. Carter proposes $0.20 cents increase in the minimum wage. You must find productive work, those able to perform it which is a basis of our society. He'll eventually get a more weaker public works legislation, the Humphrey-Hawkins bill. The AFL-CIO issues a statement in May, May of 77, three months after Carter takes office, Jimmy Carter has retreated. Carter doesn't care right now. That's the old politics. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. In fact, a reassuring poll shows that Jimmy Carter would now beat Ford by eight points instead of two. And this is May 1977. Then there's the $50 rebate. Carter wants to send a check to every household. This was a new idea at the time, but it's something we're more familiar with. Sending a check to every household, 50 bucks. Milton Freeman, the economist, rallies the strict economic conservatives against this. Inflationary, the sure way to kill things. But it's popular to send out money. And Carter wins over some Democrats in Congress to supporting this who hadn't been for it originally. Then Carter gets an economic report and sees that the economy has improved slightly and pulls the idea. He didn't consult with us, O'Neill said. Members had stuck their necks out for this $50 idea. You reach the first 100 days and whose ever fault it was, there's an issue. See, since FDR, this has been the standard. In 100 days, a new president should achieve all these great things. But Carter hasn't done much. He does a minor energy, out-of-state deregulatory law, issues amnesty to draft dodgers. That's as controversial as it is supported. That's a mix. Small executive actions and things. 
but no legislation. Now, Carter's and their team respond that they have no easy single action bills to give. Problems are big. Oil per barrel has doubled. Schools are closing to save money on, on energy. The solutions are just as big, just as complex. They're not going to be done in a month. He puts forth his energy bill. It's a moral equivalent of war, he said. It has 113 proposals. And right from the start, he says, everybody's favorite thing in Washington. It's not necessarily going to be popular. From gas to heating, from groceries to industry to airlines, energy is the major cause of inflation. And to emphasize the speech, Carter appears in a fireside chat. We must look back in the history to understand our energy problem. Twice in the last several hundred years, there's been a transition in the way people use energy. The first was about 200 years ago, when we changed away from wood, which had provided about 90% of all fuel, to coal, which was much more efficient. Just like FDR did his fireside radio chats. Real fireplace there, asking Americans to conserve. To emphasize the point, Carter wore a cardigan sweater. This change became the basis of the Industrial Revolution. The second change took place in this century. With the growing use of oil and natural gas, they were more convenient and cheaper than coal, and the supply seemed to be almost without limit. And therein lies the contradiction of Jimmy Carter, because on one hand, he keeps doing these things that make him closer to the people, and some of them people like. It's not clear if the sweater came off well, like how much of the imperial trappings of the presidency do you want to give up? But for from Carter's perspective, addressing energy with a solid, meaty proposal that incorporated a lot of different steps was much better than, say, what Jerry Ford did in the past, which was his whip inflation now. You know, we're not just talking about abstract things like whip inflation and wearing buttons. Um, cardigan sweater aside, this is a real plan to drive a stake through the heart of the real problem of inflation, which is energy prices. But energy is not a single thing. It takes many forms. It takes contradictory forms, even. It's the kind of policy where you could pass a piece of energy legislation, get it through pretty quickly, and say, we're done here. And you'd have one side or the other really happy. For instance, you could just pass a bill saying energy bills must be reduced 20%. Okay. Or you could have a bill that says if you produce new energy as a domestic producer, you're going to make more money. Great. Producers are happy. What about consumers? So all of these have drastic problems. They'll have effects on either the supply or the pricing or they just won't work. So Carter was setting himself up here. I think it's important to see Jimmy Carter in a lot of ways as a fixer president, trying to fix something. It had the hallmarks of a bruising nobody wanted. He had no choice. The Arab oil embargo of 73 to 74 showed how devastating the impact of increased energy prices was. Foreign oil sales, again, half of American energy, directly associated with inflation, out of control, Another thing to keep in mind as we talk about 1977 is they have this really strong winter. 
Snow is seen in Burlingham, Alabama that winter. There are flurries on the outskirts of Miami and even seen in the Bahamas. Up north, where it's supposed to snow, it's blizzards and the snowpack is so heavy because the snow and the wind just keeps on pushing it that in western New York, you're basically at the point, travel by snowplow only. We're using more and more energy in the country to deal with that winter. This just makes the gravity of the problem more apparent as Jimmy Carter's taken office. There's a lot of news stories about how much energy we're using, how cold it is. Congressional Quarterly talks about the rapid depletion of natural gas supplies, that schools are closed, workers being sent home. So here's Carter's proposal. It's comprehensive. First, reduce the rate of energy consumption. Americans need to use less. Thus, cardigan, sweater, other things. There'll be other mechanisms of law as well, and not just encouragement. Carter suggests a 68-degree daytime and 55-degree at night thermostat set. It is weird now to think about the President of the United States telling us where to set a thermostat, and that might be only associated with Carter, but you know, Nixon does it during the oil embargo, but Carter gets more um, memory and history about doing it. Carter speaks on energy two nights in the row. In a row, once directly to the American people and then to Congress, both are televised. But it's more than just example. Part of his bill is to reduce speed limits to 55 miles per hour and television ads promoting conservation to get U.S. usage down by millions of barrels of oil per day. Then to reduce oil imports by increasing domestic production to establish a strategic petroleum reserve that still exists today. And then, something that doesn't sound great now, increasing coal production to conserve oil. But at the same time, expanding renewable energy, solar, wind, nuclear, hydrogen, but also research on renewable energy. It's a patchwork of little plans. The federal government would support insulating homes. It would pool transportation of federal employees in vans. And because... That's only one little group of employees. The whole thing's designed to be a model for other large companies to emulate. Transportation, there'd be mass transit support, making transportation grants support more mass transit. There's also deregulation in his bill, tax incentives and tax disincentives. He announces his energy committee in April in his speech, He demands they finish their work in June. They do. It doesn't allow for adequate consultation with Congress. And Tip O'Neill, the Democrats in Congress, are handed a bill. Now, to hear Tip O'Neill's side of the the story, and it's true probably in the results, he takes that bill and tries to get it passed with everything he's got. Right from the get-go, though, Congress is trouble for Carter. They quibble with his plan. One example is when Congressman Bob Kruger from Texas, heavily supported by the oil industry in his state, proposes and gets the House Commerce Committee to adopt his own deregulation plan for the industry, not Carter's. He proposes to end regulation for all new gas drilled onshore. No regulation. And end it in five years for offshore gas and to provide for special pricing for emergency gas as there's crisis in the needed. 
So special price, high price, for emergency gas needs. To protect interstate gas markets, all industry-friendly. Carter wants, and many want, to be able to allow, you know, if you have energy in Louisiana, to be able to sell that in Texas and Alabama. Many in the industry want to keep the interstate markets going and not have the federal government involved. Kruger wins his vote. To win, he surprises the Democrats by reaching out to Republicans on the committee, and he can get it past Speaker O'Neill's machinations this way. This is not what Carter wants. Representative John Dingell of Michigan now leads an effort to beat it in the um, Kruger's bill is in a starts in a subcommittee. In the committee, John Dingell of Michigan now leads an effort to beat it in the Commerce Committee using an amendment. There's a substitute amendment. It gets into House rules, and the vote goes 22 to 21. Two Republicans vote for Dingell's plan, which is close to Carter's plan. One of them received a call from President Carter. He's Mark Marks of Pennsylvania. He'll go on to be a bit of a, we might call a rhino today, critical of the GOP congressman, critical, he'll be critical of Reagan in the early 80s, have a couple terms in Pennsylvania, Republican. Carter also wants stronger taxes on gas-guzzling cars. He wants extra taxes for cars that go less than 15 miles per gallon. Congress puts that at 18 and lowers the amount of the tax. The tax, Carter's plan would be to go into a trust fund to pay for the national debt. Carter doesn't, Congress does not want that to be exclusive. House approves his tax on wellheads to raise the price of crude oil produced in the U.S. through taxes, which would raise these prices from 857 to 13.30 per barrel in 1980. So you're going to get um, – now, so in other words, the Carter Energy plan is to raise prices for oil as a disincentive to using more oil. But the way to raise those prices is through taxes. World prices are much higher than domestic producers. So Carter says if you – start a new wellhead you can sell at world prices. In other words, no regulation on price. Carter's plan also involves taxes on these um, wellhead taxes to be rebated to all adults through tax credits. Now, for those who have oil heat in their house or kerosene heat in their house, a rebate to dealers would be provided that they could pass on to consumers a 20% income tax, and up to $2,000 for expenses. Carter's energy plan also calls to, ba- to ban new utility plants from burning oil and requiring coal or other fuels to be used. So, you know, so a lot of this is going to sound, first of all, it's going to sound very government intense and heavy, and it is, although to be fair, Energy is an area where the government's always been a bit more involved with energy and utilities and and things like that. But yeah, Carter's is a very 
heavy-handed plan in a lot of ways. I mean, that sounds na- – I really don't want to bias it so much by saying it because that is what opponents are going to say about it. Um, oh, my gosh. You should see Reason Magazine here. Might as well just quote it. Yeah. Carter's energy program amounts to a declaration of war, not against Arabs or against waste, but against the taxpayer. What Carter has proposed is nothing short of fascism. Yeah, and you thought that was only used now, right? Fascism. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, there's going to be a lot of musts in in Carter's energy plan. There are also going to be some incentives for production. Again, like allowing new wellheads to to pay to get to get the world price for oil. He's going to require coal. Now, this seems strange, but coal is domestically produced, so it doesn't impact foreign policy at the time, which was very dicey in the Middle East in the late 1970s. Still is, right? And, you know, you can use other fuels on new energy plants. So it's going to be a way of encouraging solar or wind, but it's like if you can't, because not all those technologies were developed well yet in 1977. If you can't use it in your new energy plant, you can also use coal. But we're banning oil. There will be special natural gas price controls. What happens in the House is they they do end up passing Carter's energy bill in July. In fact, leaders go to work for Carter's plan and say, look, we want this passed by August. You know, we're not the Senate. We're not here to slow things down. This is the president's plan. There's urgency. When pro-industry proponents try to introduce a deregulation scheme that we talked about earlier, but they enhance it and it goes to a floor vote, Tip O'Neill comes down from the podium and goes to the well of the House like any other House member and speaks forcefully for the bill. Never have I seen so many lobbyists in town. This is a vote for the consumer. And by a vote of 227 to 119, O'Neill is successful. And they throw out Kruger's deregulation plan. And eventually, Carter will get most of his energy bill. Now, what is very controversial is a tax at the pump. That'll be removed. And the other part that's controversial is a plowback, incentives for production. That's defeated as well in the House bill. And it goes to the Senate. Federal investigators said today that Burt Lance did nothing wrong in his personal banking deals during the two years before he became President Carter's budget director. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. This is a very common phrase nowadays, and you might think it's ancient, like it's one of those phrases that has been around forever. But it's not really. It can be traced pretty much to 1977 and to Carter's budget director, Burt Lance. He had served as Georgia's highway director, and Carter tapped him for the position running the country's budget. You know, the the budget that the president's going to submit to Congress, which is an important position because it's going to determine who gets what. Everything was great. Rick Perlstein, in his book, Reaganland, describes Burt Lance as the breakout star of the administration. Everybody seems to like him, even Tip O'Neill, who's very critical of Carter's staff, um, and particularly the ones from Georgia, likes Burt Lance. Burt Lance is a good friend. He sacrificed much for the public service. 
but his good sense of humor would be sorely tested in the months ahead in order to meet the very stringent standards all potential appoint had to reveal their financial holdings and divest themselves of any corporate or professional obligations that might create a conflict of interest. Here's Time Magazine, son of a former president of Young Harris College, a small Methodist school in Georgia. Lance keeps a Bible in his office, as does Carter. Lance had to drop out of the University of Georgia in his senior year and never did get a college degree. He admits to not being steeped in the intricacies of macroeconomics or international finance. I belong to the People School of Economics, he told Time. In 1951, Lance began working as a -a 90-a-month teller in the Calhoun First National Bank, married the granddaughter of the president, and took over the top job in 1963. Three years later, Lance drummed up business support for the unsuccessful gubernatorial campaign of an ambitious political newcomer named Jimmy Carter. Lance also ran for governor after Carter, Georgia limited governors to one term, and Lester Maddox, segregationist, um, Time calls him a primitive, this is an account to Time magazine, Lance was his choice, but despite the expenditure of $1 million in the campaign, Lance lost the primary to Maddox and George Busby, the eventual winner. The next year, Lance became the president of the National Bank of Georgia. Everything was shining with Bert Lance, the president's good friend, until William Sapphire's article appeared in July 77. Questions had been raised about Lance's use of his position as president of a Georgia bank to obtain multi-million dollar personal loans from banks in New York and Chicago. Full, really that first article that hits Carter's Broken Lance is not a friendly, one could almost call it a hit piece. It's full of insinuations about you know, what Lance was involved with, with Teamsters accounts in his bank. And, and you know Teamsters are associated with mobsters, so ergo Lance is associated with mobsters kind of stuff, suggesting impropriety and political favors. But what Lance did have was a troubled bank. It needed help, and First Chicago bailed him out. Here, Sapphire pointed out, we have a situation in which the man running the country's finances is in hock for millions. Why did First Chicago bail out this little bank in Georgia? Perhaps to gain a friend in the new administration. Advisor, go to the Senate Governmental Affairs Committee, which had been responsible for his confirmation. Inform its members of the facts and ask them to relieve him of the obligation to sell all his stock. The Senate committee approved this proposal, but the process aroused a firestorm of questions from the press. The news starts to accumulate. There's more analysis of what Lance is doing. Here's from Time Magazine. Bert Lance was summoned last week for what was supposed to be an unpublicized interrogation by the controller of the currency. John Hyman, who's investigating loans the budget director has received. After the hour-long session, Lance hastily called the press conference to reveal and rebut new questions Hyman had raised about a $2.6 million loan to Lance by New York Manufacturer Trust in April 1975. Soon after, he became president of the Bank of Georgia. The big question is whether Lance got the credit as an improper quid pro quo for having his bank place an interest-free deposit manufacturers Hanover. After the loan, his Georgia bank shifts its correspondent account in New York from Citibank 
to manufacturers Hanover, depositing 250000 and later reaching as much as $1.5 million. So the allegation here is that because of a personal loan that Hanover extends to the bank president, to Bert Lance, he moves the Georgia Bank's accounts to this New York bank. Illegal? Hmm. Maybe not. Hard to prove exactly in any case, but questionable. And when more of these allegations start to come out, um, Carter doesn't say anything during this investigation. But when the first report comes out from Carter's Treasury Department, from the Comptroller of the Treasury, it's reviewed by Ham Jordan, a couple other aides of Carter. They present to him, and it looks like an exoneration. And Carter goes out with that and says that uh, the report shows that he had done nothing. I have reviewed the report of the Comptroller of the United States, both personally and also with the White House legal counsel, Bob Lipschutz. And my faith in the character and competence of Bert Lance has been reconfirmed. That's not exactly what the report says. The report says there's nothing that could be prosecuted. Here's the Times. The White House strategy was the product of an early principle and initial error. The principle stressed by those around Mr. Carter was that no individual ought to be driven from office by unsubstantiated allegations. The error was that the first report of the Comptroller of the Currency confirmed the White House believed that there were no legitimate charges against Mr. Lance. On the evening of August 17th, the draft of the report by the Comptroller was hurriedly examined by Hamilton Jordan and other aides. Mr. Hyman had written, We do not believe that the information developed to date in the inquiry warrants the prosecution of any individuals. The sentence was carefully drawn. It stressed that there was no prosecutable evidence, without saying there was no questionable conduct. Nonetheless, at Camp David, Mr. Carter decided, on the strength of his aide's initial reading, that he should strongly endorse his budget director. This will continue. It will be a lot of questions on this Lance affair. One is the role of the news media and the role of an administration that has come in post-Watergate. Both institutions are examined in the context of Watergate. There's a little bit of an examination, not enough, of whether the media is overplaying it. For instance, Robert Novak, who is critical of the Carter administration, generally a conservative journalist, um, criticizes Sapphire for using the term Lance Gate. You know, it's one of the first uses of that term in another context. And he says, absolutely no call for that. Total exaggeration to call this a gate. Like, it's not anything impeachable. At best, you know, Bert Lance is probably going to have to resign. There's definitely questions about um, some of the news media tactics, for instance, making insinuations that monies were were stolen from the bank by Lance. And Lance is going to be brought up on charges and in 1981 is going to be acquitted of all these charges and actually start running the Calhoun Bank again until 1986. The accumulation of stories and questions from reporters around this Lance affair is too much. Here's the Times. By Friday, September 2nd, one of the most important White House advisors told Mr. Lance he did not believe he could survive in office. The advisor, not 
identified by the Times, expressed an opinion about which he was later to waver that the committee hearings will not help. They'll make things worse. He could spare himself if he merely read a statement in his own defense and then announced he was going to resign. The trouble was, Burt didn't agree. And now, so you have a friend of the president, a good friend of the president, campaign manager of the president, guy who wanted to be governor after him. I mean, just so many things there um, in trouble in Washington, D.C. And one of the points Carter keeps bringing up is that he sold his stock in this bank in Georgia in order to take this position in Washington. And now look, look what they're doing. So Bert Lance is apparently from the inside accounts looking for an exoneration of himself and Washington is not the place to get it. And so the only one that can do it is President Carter. Bert Lance eventually, by September 20th, decides to resign, but he both says that he's been exonerated, that he's had his day in court, that's all he was waiting for, and he also announces his resignation. Jimmy Carter puts out a statement that says, Burt Lance is my friend. Um, he's been exonerated. You know, it's a mischaracterization by Bob Woodward and other reporters of, of the report. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance, wherever you get your podcasts. Is what um, most in the press believe. Republicans in the Senate are not pleased. Uh, William Roth of Delaware, who would be Joe Biden's uh, counterpart at this time, uh, says, I'm not uh, pleased with some of the answers that he gave. They don't match up with the facts in the report, things like that. So there, there's even talk of this being continued questions about this matter and lining it up to see if what did the president know? When did he know it? Did, was Jimmy Carter involved in any of these bank transactions in any way? Did he know about them and all of this? Um, it's not good for Carter. Carter comes into August with a 60% approval rating in Gallup. When you get into October, you know, right after Burt Lance resigns, it's down to 55. 
the president is not going to reach above 60 again for the rest of his presidency. So 1977 is this rare moment and where you have a president, you're seeing the honeymoon of a president, he's doing a lot of things. And if you want to identify the moment where some of that starts to lose some steam, it's Burt Lance, especially looking at opinion polls and news coverage. And it's going to directly affect where energy is in the second body of Congress, in the Senate, which is now, you know, Tip O'Neill has gotten it through the House, and now Carter's energy package has to go through the Senate. And in the wake of Burt Lance, it's a different thing. A world is still engaged in a massive, ominous race designed to ensure continuing equivalent strength among potential adversaries. We pledge perseverance and wisdom in our efforts to limit the world's armaments, and we move this year a step towards ultimate goal, the elimination of all nuclear weapons from this earth. We come to foreign policy in 1977. During the campaign, Carter searched for an angle to use against the incumbent president, Gerald Ford was a challenger, and to some degree, Gerald Ford was really a new figure in national politics, a bit of an unknown. Um, but so was Carter, and he's facing an incumbent president. So the advantage was Ford's normally on foreign policy if you're running against a president. And so Carter attempts to attack President Ford for focusing too much on human rights in the Helsinki Accords, and not enough on competition with the Soviets. But later in the campaign, as they're doing polls, Carter found the human rights issue worked for him. He won support both with liberals who wanted more compassionate foreign policy for the U.S. and with conservatives, who in some cases distrusted the policy of detente proposed by Henry Kissinger and Nixon. Gerald Ford had pushed and wanted to start to challenge the Soviets on their human rights policies, show how evil they are. He pushes it at Helsinki. You have the Helsinki Accords. Um... Looking back, both Carter and Ford take some credit for the uh, fall of the Soviet Union. You know, it's a mixed bag. Certainly Helsinki embarrassed the Soviets on the world stage. But um, many people will tell you it wasn't the, the Helsinki watch groups that brought down the Soviet Union. It, was, it came from a very different place. But put that aside. In any case, Carter now embraces that issue of human rights. And so essentially by the end of the 76 election, after flirting with like, I'm going to attack Ford for being too human rights focused, um, he comes back to it and both candidates are really for human rights. So Carter takes to office with a human rights foreign policy agenda. He sent Cyrus Vance, his new secretary of state to Moscow to meet with the Russian leaders. But before he does it, he sends out a message and he makes statements about human rights in the Soviet Union. He even writes a letter, Sakharov, which goes as far as to say, we're going to do everything we can to help you. Sakharov writes back. He says, can you speak out for a few other people? You know, Carter doesn't go that far, but he does write a letter to the most important dissident, the engineer and spokesperson, Andrei Sakharov. Something else. Within a month of his presidency, Carter wants to signal to the Soviets that he means to be peaceful, and he does this by reducing the defense budget. But it's not a lot. He proposes $120 billion for 1978. That's $3 billion less than what President Ford proposed. 
Are the Soviets impressed by this gesture? It's hard to say. The amount Carter proposes to reduce is small. And indeed, it's still a $10 billion increase off 1977, the previous year's fiscal budget. Maybe, though, he's showing that he's not going to build a Leviathan. So, for instance, you're hearing about the deployment of cruise missiles to postpone the Russians' new bomber, the backfire bomber, to reduce the deployment of missile launchers, to stop the deployment of any new weapon systems, to freeze the present level about 550 intercontinental ballistic missiles, to limit the number of test firings of missiles to six firings per year. All of this, Carter believes, is fair, balanced, a substantial reduction to the arms race which would have guaranteed, Carter says, a permanent lessening of tension and a mutual benefit to both our countries. Okay, and so Cyrus Vance gets a a pretty cool reception in Moscow. I mean, the Carters, Carter had expressed in public his negotiating positions. So that's a problem. Now the Russians, you know, They don't have to face elections, well, non-competitive elections every two years, but they still have public opinion to deal with, and they have internal uh, party opinion to deal with, and they don't want to look weak. If all you're doing is accepting what the man has put out there in public, he hasn't kept his wants secret, people will think you didn't get enough. Leonid Brezhnev sent Cyrus Vance home early, with no concessions at all, already in March 1977. Carter tries to put a good spin on it. My own uh, opinion so far, and I've done a good bit of work on it even since uh, Moscow talks, is that our proposal was fair and was equitable. And if the Soviets can give us some uh, explanation about which we were not aware concerning their own capabilities or plans, I would certainly take that into consideration. You know, I'm not discouraged at all. Sivan sent back the word that he was disappointed that we didn't reach immediate agreement, that he was not discouraged. The reporters ask him if he's going to abandon his human rights statements. No, I will not modify my human rights statements. They're compatible with the consciousness of this country. Um, Soviets have, in effect, ratified the human rights the rights of human beings when they adopted the United Nations Charter, Carter says. The Helsinki Agreement, which will be assessed at Belgrade later this year, includes references to human rights themselves. So I don't intend to modify my position. It's a position that I think accurately represents the attitude of the country. I mean, is it it that Moscow was upset? No, I think the old Russia hands knew that this was a card. Russia, you know, we all play pretending to be hurt by American statements. But it's one that Carter and his people didn't see to seem to see coming. In May of 1977, Carter goes to London, Paris, and Bonn, West Germany, and things went better than expected for the new American president. He impressed the European allies, even Germany, where there was expected conflict. German Chancellor Schmidt did not agree with Carter's focus on human rights in the Soviet Union. He had a better than expected meeting there. In Korea, however, Carter has another flub. Looking to balance the federal budget, he saw the huge expense of troops on the Korean Peninsula, and he advocated moving 30,000 troops from South Korea from the demilitarized zone. When the general in charge 
said it would be unsafe, Carter fired him. Of course, that action invoked memories of the early 1950s, where Truman fired General MacArthur. Neither president was helped by taking on one of their generals. It hurt Carter in opinion polls, but it hurt even more when Carter ended up relenting and only removing 3,000, 10% of what he had proposed, an insignificant amount of savings compared to the amount of troops there and all the trouble he encountered. There was little Carter could do. Several key prominent Democrats, Sam Nunn, Hubert Humphrey, who became a senator, um, at least for a couple of years, did part, you know, he'll die in 78, opposed the removal of troops from Korea. He didn't have his own party with him. He ran into more resistance when he attempted to cancel the B-1 bomber project, which drew the ire of many Democrats. During Carter's visit to Europe in May, he also took time to go to Geneva to visit the Syrian leader Assad. He was attempting to forge relations among Middle East countries that America had not talked to before, but this sparked criticism and an angry reaction from Israel and contributed to the hardline Likud policy winning their election in May. They used this as an issue. You know, we're going to be tougher with America as Likud's, one of Likud's campaign messages. A Likud victory was seen at the time that it would be much harder to bring Israel to the table in any kind of peace deal. Although Carter would accomplish this feat the next year of his presidency with a Likud leader, Begin, who was known as a super hawk in the August of 1977, it seemed at the time that this was a big negative for Carter. Carter then sent out to work another plank of foreign policy in his deal with Panama to turn over control of the pan, the control, um, to turn over the control of the canal to the country of Panama. In the campaign, Carter had opposed this move, but as he became president, he saw the transfer of the canal to Panama as a way to show the friendliness of the United States to Latin America and avoid a conflict with Panama over the canal, one that maybe the Soviets could take advantage of. Ronald Reagan had used the Panama Canal issue to savage Jerry Ford when Ford had talked about transferring even partial control or gradual control to the Panamanians. Now the president was advocating turning over what many perceived to be American property to a foreign government. Carter would eventually get his Panama Canal Treaty, and that canal would be handed over in 1999. Uh, the vote for it happens 20 years prior, and it is damaging to senators that voted for it and to Carter. Said reporters Evans and Novak in their column, the campaign whiz kid of 1976 was the political incompetent of 1977. Now, Evans and Novak are not very friendly to Democrats in general, but still, it, 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 it was a lot of folks' opinions at that time. More damning than the actual Gallup poll rating, which at times during presidencies goes up and down, is that when interviewed further, many Americans were saying they didn't believe this president could get anything done. His best months were in the early months of 1977. Of course, we'd have some successes, the meeting in Camp David, bringing together Egypt and Israel, the development of the housing and urban development departments, education department, beating back in the last year of his presidency, a challenge from Democrat Ted Kennedy. And he passed energy. Now, what happens with, we go back to energy, and the timing of the Burt Lance affair is not good because... Carter's approval rating going down at the time that the energy bill has passed the House and is now reaching the Senate. And the first thing that happens is the Senate, unlike the House, doesn't have a deadline to pass it. 
entered into the Oval Office today a young Senator, Joe Biden of Delaware. He has advised me on some matters. He will be a friend to our administration. Senators can introduce their own motions. It's a much more, uh, individual members are much stronger in the Senate then, particularly then, but still are now. Russell Long from Louisiana, heavy in supporter of the oil industry, wants to introduce gas deregulation, oil re- deregulation, not you know, in line with what Carter's proposing at all. And there's a lot of support in the Senate for it. So two support senators that are supportive to Carter uh, issue, um, they don't have 41 votes to just filibuster, you know, just keep talking. So they use another tactic. They keep amending it. And each amendment, they require a vote. And then they require a quorum count before each vote. And you're getting days and days, hours and hours, weeks and weeks. The Senate's getting nothing done because they've introduced 300 amendments to the energy bill in the Senate. They say they're defending Carter's program, but as it turns out, Majority Leader Robert Byrd in the Senate wants to break the logjam. He says, I am the majority leader. I am going to rule out of order any dilatory amendments because it's it's the same as a filibuster, in other words. And Vice President Walter Bondale makes that ruling as the as the presiding officer of the Senate. The vice president is the president of the Senate. But this adds to confusion because the senators who are doing all the amendment filibustering were trying to preserve Carter's plan, but now Mondale, the Carter's vice president, has broken their plan. There's you know, accusations that the administration is double dealing and all of this stuff. And in any case, it takes quite a long time for the Senate to pass an energy bill. And it's very different from the House bill. It's going to have to um, be adjusted in conference. And that's not going to happen in the first year of 1977. Carter says it was the one issue that must be called a failure. The presidency of Jimmy Carter is an example of a phenomenon in American politics that is seen in 1977, the presidential honeymoon. The president is elected conceivably with a large mandate. A little bit of fear in Washington of this new guy coming in who can make or break their political careers, who who the American people might like and don't want you to oppose. Get some respect from the Congress. But they have a few months to achieve the maximum amount of their goals. It does seem that successful presidents accomplish things in the first few months. Maybe it doesn't have to be 100 days. But it's those first few months. Carter's story demonstrates the opposite, that if you don't accomplish in the first few months, the whole presidency might be in trouble. A couple other notes about Jimmy Carter. He has, as you know, become one of the most successful ex-presidents in his involvement with charity work and the Carter Center, several diplomatic initiatives, helping sitting presidents with foreign policy at different times, monitoring elections, resolving crises around the world. He's improved his image overall as a person. Um, And polls that are taken decades after his presidency even see his presidency in a greater light. I believe that since we've experienced energy spikes in 2008 and again 
in 2021 and 2022. We understand Jimmy Carter in 1977, perhaps a little better now. Um, as throughout the 80s and the 90s, all that anyone would look back and see the pain of the times and associated with him. Maybe that view is controversial. Maybe there's some that think that a different person elected in 1976 somehow wouldn't have those same problems. Um, the energy plan that Carter's going to pass in his next year, you know, changes things dramatically in terms of energy policy. That strategic reserve is still there. Um, we all well, almost all, see the merit in researching new technologies, solar, um, wind, electric, electric cars and hybrid cars and things like that. We see the, I think it's apparent now, the foresight in those programs, in, in promoting those programs using the bully pulpit of the office, if whether it was successful or not. Um Other parts of it, for instance, windfall taxes were just simply removed from the programs. And some parts of the energy plan that Carter had just simply don't work. I mean, it would cry a whole podcast to go into that. You know, but I do think that when energy prices drop in the 80s, because the Saudis who had been holding on to their oil eventually by 83 want cash and they want to start selling again and they break the log jam. And that's one of the many reasons that prices go down a bit. And so when you're in a time when costs are less, it's harder to see a president in a time of sacrifice, in a time where energy supplies were limited here. And... um look at that. There's something else here. Presidents, per the Constitutional Convention, were elected by the Electoral College, a group of supposedly wise men who would be picked merely for the purpose of selecting a president. The president was not originally elected by the people. Though there were proposals for it, it's not what passed. The framers of the Constitution didn't have anything like a mandate in mind. It was Andrew Jackson who started the concept of an election mandate. That produced a mandate that gave the president the idea of being the representative of the people. They are elected by the whole nation. They have a mandate to govern. Carter takes that extremely seriously. And I think at times too seriously. Uh, and I think at times a person that was a Democratic president and seen as somebody who's a fan of democracy, and he certainly is. I don't, don't never thought he was anything else. But was a little, you know, seemed to be a little bit too enamored with his own election and not the concurrent election of members of Congress who also had a mandate in each of their districts. Despite the frenetic energy, the pace of introduction of legislation by the White House, the calendar is the reality. 1977 must end. By the end of it, through all the trials and tribulation, you have a president with a 57% approval rating.
which is not bad. And there's really very little reason to believe in 1977, I mean, partisan attacks aside, sure, Ronald Reagan's out there making all kinds of statements, but nobody thinks he's going to be president. Maybe Ford comes back or something else. Nobody, you know, there's no reason to believe that this political situation won't work, that what Carter's doing won't work, that his approach, his fresh approach, won't work. He's come down, no doubt, in approval rating from 75 to 57 from Inauguration Day, but disapprove up from 8%, 30%. These problems are going to linger. But as you end 77, there's no reason to think, no reason to think that this is a president in trouble. Carter ends 1977 outside the United States. He's in Poland. He's equating American and Polish aspirations on human rights. He's in the middle of the Warsaw Bloc, nations that ostensibly are controlled by the Soviet Union. And indeed, the government of Poland receives aid, uh, military support, and advice. In fact, gets orders from Brezhnev at Moscow. But they have some independence, and they have borrowed a lot of money over the 70s from Western nations. Carter said he's grateful for the degree of religious freedom that exists in Poland. In Poland, the Roman Catholic Church has been made a partner with the communist state. My own constant hope is that the nations will give maximum freedom of religion and freedom of expression to their people, Carter said. From the Associated Press, President Carter hatless and wearing a blue top coat paused for a moment in silent prayer today and placed a gloved hand to his face in a gesture of humility at the Warsaw Ghetto Monument, a black stone memorial to the thousands of Jews who held out in the walled ghetto against the Nazis during a short-lived uprising in 1943. The president then walked over to shake hands with Poles, many of whom shouted, Carter! Carter! Commenting on the ghetto uprising, Mr. Carter told the crowd, They died alone. But they live in our conscience. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Um, a thing to say about this cast, this was originally produced in 2009 and I've added to it a bit. It's originally from 2009. I'm going to be doing that with some of the older podcasts because there's a lot of good information there. It's just some of them were badly recorded, bad production. And I also think there's a few things to add. Hope you enjoyed it.